Hello and welcome to another episode and season of Justice Rising, where we explore how we can work toward liberation, healing, and transformation one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Samantha Anity. What is transformative justice? How do we come to a place of personal and societal healing? These are some of the questions I unpack on this episode when I sat down with award-winning filmmaker, Dr. Gilda Shepard. Thank you, Gilda, for joining us today. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started. How did you get to this um, current place? First of all, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for this podcast. I really see the importance of media and allowing for us to tell our stories. So I really appreciate justice rising. Yeah, <laughs> let's hope it continues to rise. Yeah. How did I get involved? Now I'm a professor of sociology, cultural media studies at the Evergreen State College Tacoma program. But how I got involved, and I've been doing that for decades, right? <laughs> and teaching in prisons for over a decade, both the men and women's prisons. But the way I got involved in teaching in prisons and then therefore becoming a filmmaker, um, doing this documentary since I've been down, was when I had just finished an ethnographic documentary in Ghana, West Africa, at a refugee camp of Liberian women and children who I was going to, I wanted to look at female child soldiers and what was going on with women and children who were in refugee camps. And and so these, this, the population was from Liberia and West Africa. And at the end of this um, filming, uh, the person who was like the main person in the refugee camp says, Sis Gilda, the same AK-47s that you see on the streets in the Civil War in Liberia in our child soldiers' hands as young as 11-year-old are in your hands, your children's hands, in your neighborhoods, and you need to do something about that. There's a tendency for us to go, for social scientists sometimes, to go so far away and make connections. Yes, that's important to do, right, to make connections. But it was the subject, the people that I was embracing their stories, who usually are the ones who guide what I do. You know, I go from one particular area to the next and learn so much. And so I found myself uh, really noticing what was going on around me, particularly in Tacoma, Washington, where I teach. And as uh, and I always like to quote James Baldwin, who says, to be an artist is the role of a lover. If I love you, I have to show you things you refuse to see or that you don't see. And, and I, I, I wasn't noticing that some of my students even had ankle braces. A welcome to mass incarceration. The person that you're talking to and sitting next to, you know, could have been incarcerated when you think about the vastness of mass incarceration. And one thing led to another. Like I said, I'm a sociologist and an artist, a filmmaker, so I believe in magic. <laughs> and one thing led to the other, and my now dean at Evergreen State College was volunteer teaching in prisons, and she said you know, she was going to get her PhD, and she said, do I want to? volunteer teach at this prison in Monroe, Washington. And I did, and I 
teach a sociology class and one of the subjects, one of the areas is sociological imagination. Looking at your biography and how historical context inform, not determine, inform how laws and all those inform. It doesn't determine, but inform. And so I started talking about that. And these gentlemen who were in my class who have been incarcerated, some with life without parole, and some who have been in prison in an adult prison since they were 13. They've been in prison longer than they've been alive. And um, that I thought I would have to break things down, dense theories, but it was just so amazing to me. I really realized my contradictions of how I looked at people who lived on the margin. Hey, I'm a black woman. Come on. There's some marginality involved in that, even though I have a PhD. <laughs> and so I said, surprise Gilda. And I found an organization who is now about 50 years old organization called the Black Prisoners Caucus, who was doing legislative submits in prison, had been doing this for 50 years and being mentors for the younger guys who came in prison. And oftentimes, even though it's settled, particularly in black folks who have been incarcerated globally from all places. But also I noticed at these summits and at these some of these um, gatherings that the Black Prisoners Caucus was putting on about juvenile justice and so many other things, the family, that it was across race lines too. And how come we don't know about this, right? How come we only know about statistics and once we had stories and now we have statistics. So I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to do it not for transformative and restorative justice. Yes, hurt people, but what can we do about laws and legislation so that we can get to the subtext of that, so that we can do systemic change, so we're not continuing to throw the babies in the water and not just trying to save them. And so uh, they taught me this, and I thought, as many learned people say, go to the prison and you will see what's really going on in our world. And but this is not a slow fade into gore. This film that, that we created since I've been down, it is the triumph of the human spirit. And as a filmmaker, as an artist, and as a sociologist, I don't want to look at just the doom. I want to also look at how we can develop programs and models that are transformative, that that bring out the triumph of the human spirit, even at the worst place possible, prison. And I started going to the women's prison, so it starts to go on. And now we have Black Prisoners Caucuses, and I think 11 of the um, is it 14, 12 or 14 prisons that we have in Washington State. And, and then the Black Prisoners Caucus started a group called Teach, Taking Education and creating history not changing creating and they and the men started teaching themselves how to teach their peers and so i realized the positionality and intimacy of when someone who is among your who is from your community teaches you and and it's not just oh let me just figure how to do this these were phenomenal classes where they talked about dense subjects and theoreticians and but always brought the intimacy to the student very student centered and so it was almost like 
and um, looking at a person's autobiography and moving cross, they went in this teach program that was Asian, Pacific Islanders, even a white nationalist gang, Latinx, cross gender lines, even though it was a men's prison, the gender spectrum, and teaching one another about their culture, and then going into algebra, going into the humanities, going into other things, history of the world. But first, starting with who are you? Like one guy who's, who had been in, in a white nationalist gang, who still in a white nationalist gang in prison, because I said, is he still in the white nationalist gang? And they said, yeah. If he's got some consciousness, who is the best to talk to his people, his community? And so here's a guy in a white nationalist gang taking a class from a guy from El Salvador. And in my film, in our film, Since I've Been Down, he talks about how how um, he learned that there's a similar enemy or a similar challenge that they both had. That building of a learning community is what got me. And it not only built the learning community inside prison, but even the prison officials were they deal with white supremacy, racism, and healing and remorse better than many of the prison staff. No. So it was like lifting as they climb and it impacted their their families, the communities, and the people they harm. My film starts out with a victim of a crime of my main character. Because we have to pay attention to that kind of healing and that kind of um, mercy. That's part of transformative and restorative justice. That we don't just gloss over and look at the triumph of the human spirit. But we look at the, the footprints that led to problems and deviance, drive-bys, drug addiction. You know, how we hold trauma. <laughs> Wow. So it sounds like this working on this film and meeting the prisoners has really been a transformative process for you. Do you feel that this is an ongoing learning or transformation or how would you frame this experience? Yes. I think that socialization and awareness of your contradictions always inform the even the questions that you raise and what you do. And my next film, I'm going to be dealing with critical race theory. Is it what is being taught in school? Who's running the race? And after that, I'll, that's a big story that I'm going to keep to myself. But yes, I think that a person's biography always has part of the signature on any kind of creative piece. Now with this film, it's taken a life of its own. Now we have the multi-faith coalition who rabbis, Christians, Muslims, people coming together. We just had a lobby day and 17 congregations from different faiths came together and had a lobby day, met with their, their legislators and talked about several bills, legislative bills that they hadn't talked about before. It's like my grandmother said, you see me on my knees, I'm getting up. I, I, I seek prayer. Oh. Mm -hmm. I seek prayer, but I seek practice too. Mm -hmm. And 
we before that we had 700 people uh, come in to see the film and this multi-faith coalition it's bringing up what are the moral issues and practices involved in justice what is mercy how does the bible deal with this how does the torah deal with this how do our our, our sacred texts deal with this how are we walking as a christian how are we walking as a muslim how are we walking as as a Jewish person, a, someone who's Baha'i, as a Buddhist, what are we doing with that faith? As my grandmother said, you see me on my knees, I'm getting up to do something too. So it's expanding to, and to really look at our, our, our religious faith. I didn't think it was going to go there. But when people saw the film, it awakened questions of morality and not just internally, but then how does that internal wilderness sometimes create pathways to change for you? So it's this one, Austin Sarat, who is a legal scholar says, um, on any given day, how we punish says as much about us as who we punish. So it's a, extremely important. I realize, as one author said, uh, Luis Rodriguez, kids don't die from being 15. No, kids don't die at 15. They die from being 15. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to our children? We're involved in in educational pursuits, too. We want to show the film in, in different prisons nationally because it highlights the subject taking on, um, Radical possibilities that start within, but extend without. Kind of like this podcast. I'm sure you had a, I'm sure you had a passion for doing these kinds of things. And I'm sure it has moved you. And as it's moved you, you're offering that movement to us through these, offering these conversations. Yes, I, it's really interesting what you mentioned about uh, the power of storytelling and filmmaking and you've used the word magic to create films. And I resonate with that because I think that we forget the power of word, the power of speech, the power of storytelling as a means to draw awareness. And so that's what I really appreciate about your work and about this film to draw people in and tell a story, hear a story, and the reciprocity that exists in this art form. Um, what was something that you gained personally from these interactions in the prisons? I love children. I didn't realize I could. Hmm. I realized our responsibility of creating pathways so that people can tell their stories, and that's how we heal our memories, how we hold trauma in our bodies. And that's the reason why in, our, in my film, in our film, I have dance in it as a B-road, as a metaphor of how we hold things in our bodies and how we can, and that there is a model that involves the subject in the pathway to not only their healing, but a healing of the circumstance and the transformation of the circumstances and laws that 
that sometimes give some people a non-negotiable pathway of doing joining a gang, of doing drugs. And the impact on me is that I I, I really pay attention to juvenile justice and basically what we do to our children and but also the triumph of the human spirit. How magical is that? That that we not only pick up our burden, as this is a quote from the sky, but we have, we choose to. And when that happens, what can happen? It's what my friend Bell Hooks, she just passed away, said, Mm -hmm. for me, forgiveness and compassion are always linked. How do we hold people accountable for wrongdoing and yet at the same time remain in touch with their humanity enough to believe in their capacity to be transformed? So I can say right now, I'm a prison abolitionist and that scares people. And I don't say you open the door and let everybody out. As Bell Hook says, language is a place to struggle. That when I say I'm a prison abolitionist, I want to create a world where we don't need prison. And that's the reason why I said transformative justice and and restorative justice. We have to look at laws and legislation. We're still voting. We're still voting on voting rights. What year is it? I mean, come on, voting rights. (laughs) And where are we? And and so, how do you define democracy? Mm. And who who has the ability? And who are we to say that no, you can't do it anymore? Because there is one state here in, in in the U.S. that allows for um, prisoners to vote. I think it's Maine. And how dare we say that like 14 states have no parole. And one of the reasons is because it was claimed to be racist, right? Who would go in front of parole if you're a person of color, blah, 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 blah. The tendencies would be that you would not get as that's what some of the research says. So what do you do? You get rid of it. You come up with a, a another kind of system here in Washington State that's called clemency. And if you don't can't afford a good lawyer, that you know, you may not get it. So you may not even get your day in in court. So I I, I realize forgiveness, compassion, transformative and restorative justice, and how we can intervene. I I do as. Uh, Arun De Roy, the the writer says, um, a new world is possible, and if you're quiet, you can hear her. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. Qualification yeah. of the world as as a woman too. You can hear her. You said so many beautiful things. I want to go back to what you said about abolition. What do you think people miss the most? What do you think? Is, why do you think people have such a knee-jerk reaction when we say we are prison, prisoner abolition? Because they look at those words and they think, open the door. They think soft on crime. They think more from a an area of retribution and we got to punish. And that even some men and women in prison say that, even though they know prison is horrible, to the extent that they change in prison is not because of prison. It's mostly because of the organizations, the prisoner initiated organizations. And if you can heal in prison, what does that say about out here? What does that say about this life that we're living right. in the U.S.? 
So we're not talking about opening the doors and letting everybody out. We know there is trauma-informed practices. We're talking about restorative and transformative practices so we don't need prisons. And we look at this as a theory, as um, Ruth uh, Wilson Gilmore says, as a theory of practice, not as just open the door and let everybody out. But as long as we're dealing with, let's punish, what is our role in creating a society where children have a chance? The majority of women who are in prison have been sexually, uh, physically uh, traumatized before the age of 18. And prisons are usually made with a man in mind, the clothes, the rules of disrobing and squatting and doing those kinds. And women, particularly our bodies, have been political spaces that have been determined by people who oftentimes are not women. You know, when I look at laws and those kinds of things, it's a long answer. But it's the words sometimes trigger, I'll, I'll dare say, this kind of practice where you just open doors and let up. No. I'm talking about a practice of responsibility from us out here. What role do we play? Like I said, how we punish says as much about us as those we punish. And what does Brian Stevenson say? I've been quoting everybody today. Brian Stevenson says that the answer to poverty in so many cases is justice. Hmm. And oftentimes poverty is criminalized. Anyway, so how would you imagine or reimagine our world if you could? You were doing that already as a filmmaker. Oh, thank you. That's what we want. I would imagine a world where there is, this is, people would say woo woo, that instead of punishment for a kid in school, I think it would start right there. We would look at violence as a public health issue. We look at addiction as oftentimes a response to trauma, right? You, a, a child, a baby isn't born and say, I want to join the gang. Where does that come from? And what? where are we starting our story with that child? Like even the the man who murdered George Floyd. They put him in prison. And then within that week, there were six other crimes against Black people by a police officer during that week. So it doesn't work. (laughs) It doesn't stop. I know there's pips. I do believe that it does present fear in some people's ways of doing things. But I would have better health care, free, quite frankly education that I would redistribute resources and funding so that education is extremely important and not based on property values. To me, that subtext is criminalizing uh, um, poverty. You live in a poor neighborhood and your school is being funded by property taxes. What resources are you getting? It's a good point. Yeah. So you're criminalizing poverty. And, and, and in the films, our film, Since I've Been Down, we look at the role of housing, gentrification. Then we look at the role of 
those kinds of things where people lose their cultural conclaves, where some of these young men who have been in prison, fathers came back from the Vietnam War and suffered from post-traumatic stress and their relationships were different. And how does that impact? It's not like, it's systemic. Right. Yeah. Do you think that transforming and restoring the criminal justice system, do you think that that would start to dismantle the systemic racism and these other systems of oppression? I don't think you start there. I think that you go there. I think you start before someone goes to prison. I think you start. Like you said, with childhood? Do you think yeah, that's Yeah, right. And in families who um, need to need healing and support in those kinds of things. And then if you're going to give somebody life without parole, give them. I know people are going to have a fit with this one. It's so woo-woo. You, you give them the task of working in a community that they harm mm. to learn to see them as human beings. That's the example that I saw in the Black Prisoners Caucus Teach program. I asked them, my main character, you went over to the white nationalist gang in prison and got them involved in this Black-led, developed, created group called Teach, Taking Education and Creating uh, History. I, I would never do that. And, they said, and he said, uh, and that's the reason why we continue to have to deal with it. Hmm. As long as we say separate, they ain't got to worry about nothing. Wow. I mean, I, I, I mean, think about it. When Martin Luther King started talking about the Vietnam War, class issues, in addition, now, he didn't take away racism and white supremacy, let's be clear. But when he added <laughs> to that, so that kind of consciousness really helps us to look at where we start our stories, even, and how we pay attention to healing. That's a good point. I think for myself, I, I think... I go straight to the issues and I don't think about the importance of child development and the start, like the origin story or the origin of human stories and family structures and how important it is to take a look at, take a look at those parts as opposed to going straight into, we got to do this and not to say that those addressing those issues aren't important, but I guess I hadn't realized until we had this conversation, the significance of these familial and child development issues. That we as a system perpetuate, and hence we have to be responsible for, think about it, to expel a child from, or suspend a child, or expel a child from a whole school district, what is that telling the child? Okay, this is how you do it. Punish. Those kinds of things. I think we have to deal with the issues, but in dealing with the issues, deal with the roots of it. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, deal with uh, mass incarceration. But yes, and, and work on, on, on policies and laws. But as you march through that, as you attempt to analyze that, look at where it comes from, not just the top. Oh, yeah. So that's the reason why with the film we have and with the multi-faith uh, group and there's another group, equity and racial equity and sentencing, where uh, there's a, 
a lot of people who are in the legal realm were looking at laws and, and legislation and all that. Washington State has the, um, I think, the only former incarcerated member of the legislature, Tara Simmons, who mm-hmm. was incarcerated at the women's prison. And when she got out, went to law, she was a nurse, but when she got out, went to law school and and had to struggle to uh, be, to even take the and then and then to be accepted into the bar. And now is Representative Tara Simmons. And I'm not saying that her being fired in that kiln makes her more brighter or wiser, but it does inform because it's not a guarantee, but it has informed how she moves in the world. And just like all of our socialism, when's the first time you ever met someone who's different from you, right? Looked different, acted different, and even in the gender spectrum, as well as race, ethnicity, socioeconomic class. And what do we do with that difference? You have a call to action. What would that be? Actually, we do have a call to action. If you go to our website, www.senceibendown. Okay, once again, senceibendown.com. Our call to actions are to really pay attention to, in this uh, 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 framework, is juvenile justice, You know what we are doing with children. And I'm not just talking about once they get into the juvenile facilities, but look at that. Look at um, the brain science with that, because brain science says your brain is not fully formed until you're 25. Now in Washington state is up to 20 just recently. Look at that brain science and what we, how we look at children in those kinds of ways, but also look at prisoner initiated programs, how programs who are that are created by the subject ha- can inform a model for transformation and those kinds of things. And also, we think it's important that we deal with legislative bills and that we be active, not only nationally, but locally. And there are a few bills that the multi-faith group that involves reduction of enhancements when someone is up for resentencing, looking at what's called LFOs, and those are financial, legal financial obligations that when a person's in prison, they get out filled with debt because of the high, because you have to pay to be in prison. And so you may, your cost may be $3,000 when you get there, but because of interest rates, they may be $30,000 when you get out. Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, you have to pay to be in prison. (laughs) And also, and, and ideas of looking at reforming parole system and which is a clemency system now. And a lot of people don't even know we don't have parole. I was talking to a senator a few years ago, and she said, yes, we do have parole. And I said, no, we don't. But a lot of people don't know it. We need to know this. We don't know what clemency means. 
that's often a conversation that I've had with people. What's clemency? And I'm like, oh, this is a space for education. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a clemency system here of people who are appointed by the governor, I do believe. And and they're this board of people who I don't think they get paid, but a board of people. And you can bring your case there and they want extraordinary changes that you have made in while you've been in prison, blah, 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 blah. And they can say yay or nay. And if they say no, then you will not be able to even present your case for three years. And it's really good to have an attorney when you go there. And the main character of my film went to the clemency. Many of the folks in my film have gone to the clemency board after they've done phenomenal things. One woman in my film, she was at the the women's prison in Gig Harbor, and she started, she and her colleagues started a group called the Women's Village, another prison initiated program. At a prison, at the women's prison, which at the time was the most uh, violent prison in Washington State, this one women's prison. But when they started the Women's vi- Village, they started this, violence went down by 50%. Does not wow. say something. Don't we should shouldn't we look at that model and say so now? This is more than magic. What did you do? We talked about best practices. But grants always say, what's the best practice or something? What's the best practice? This is a best practice. And so she put her case before the clemency, and she was allowed, but was rejected from clemency that she needed to be in prison. A little long. So you think, so what do you do? Well, she didn't stop doing what she was doing. And now she's out. And we usually speak after screening of our film and she's doing okay. But there are many who have not been able to get a chance, you know, to put their case in front of a group to consider. It feels gladiators, you know, fingers up, fingers down. <laughs> who and what is the criteria? I was wondering who determines. Obviously, it's the judge, but for what reason? But oftentimes, it's not the judge because really? of mandatory minimums. No, because huh. we it's called mandatory minimum. So instead of a parole system, we have these um, 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 numbers that if you. If it was armed robbery, you get these many points. If it was this, you get these many points. But the judge used to be able to look at your rehabilitation and what you were doing and consider that. Now a judge does math, adds the points up, and it's usually from a prosecutor's perspective. And I'm not poo-pooing prosecutors. Don't get me wrong. Not at all. Okay? And the judge has nothing to say. It adds up to this, which gives you this many years, and therefore you go. Is that why, how they get some of these absurd numbers, like 170 yes. years or something? My main character got 777 years. This little boy who was 13 and went to prison. And these are violent crimes that they committed. I'm not saying that. And that's the reason why I start my film with a, a victim of my main character's crime, because I need to pay attention to that. That grieving process is extremely difficult. Also, research says that 
forgiveness and mercy helps in that grieving process. Mm. But yeah, so that's that is the model that we use a very punishing model. So yeah, so we that's the clemency. That's what that's what goes on. And then if the clemency uh, board says the majority says yes, we will send this to the governor. The governor can wait for as long as he, she, or they want. So it's not at all, nothing is automatic. And sometimes no matter what you do. And it becomes difficult. And then, and I think that's the reason why we have this multi, the uh, the faith groups were so involved in this. Because they, it started to make them interrogate and examine their moral compass, their faith, and the possibility. What was that line in Matthew, if you have faith of, of a mustard seed? I see that all the time I go into prisons. And the faith in themselves for the power of remorse, the process of grieving, and the responsibility I hear from them for the rest of their lives is making sure they can do their part in making this a just society. And not just look at justice through crime. Look at justice through this podcast, the importance of this. I'm not just feeding you this. Samantha, it is true. I remember in my in the film, in the close since I've been down in the end, this one guy, Marco, he says, uh, a class, he's in this class, a philosophy class. And he said, what is justice? And people were saying, it's modern day slavery. It's da-da, on and on, all these you know, terrible things. And he said, wait, this class is what justice is. Mm-hmm. Too often, justice is connected to something we did wrong. And I'm not saying it doesn't need a connection to that and how we process and deal with that. But also justice is the these pathways that are created for possibility. How is your classroom justice? How is your family justice? Who do you other and why? Mm. And face your contradictions. As here's another quote, huh? Alice Walker, one of her poems is, be nobody's darling. Wear your contradictions like a shawl. Because we all have them. Mm-hmm. Wear contradictions like a shawl. Wow. Yeah. Don't be afraid of them. I think that's where the healing comes from. Yes. I, totally, Samantha. That's it. Yeah. You know, who, he who has not sinned, throw the first rock. Thank you for sharing the, all of this wisdom. <laughs> Thank you, Samantha, for giving us the platform. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in today. IPJC continues our work for restorative justice through our participation in CORE, Collaborative Organizing for Racial Equity, a collaboration between the Jesuit Works in Seattle. Visit our website, Instagram, and Facebook to follow along, get involved, and act. 
If you live in Washington State, you can go to our Legislative Center page on our website for information on how you can help pass HB 5036 and expand clemency. If you liked this episode and want to hear more like it, hit the subscribe button and listen on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.